This is Difference Makers, and I'm your host, Adam Van Bremer. On this episode, the executive director of the Deep Center, Dare Dukes, shares insights on the power of literacy and creative arts to lift Savannah's youth. Difference Makers podcast is brought to you by an organization making a major difference in our community, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. organizations and businesses they lead. You might even know their faces, but do you know why they are Difference Makers? This is Difference Makers, a podcast presented by the Savannah Economic Development Authority and dedicated to highlighting Savannah's key players and their contributions to our community. Difference Makers hail from several sectors, including commerce, government, education, arts and culture, and philanthropy. I'm Adam Van Bremer, editorial page editor of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. Thank you for listening. The Deep Center started humbly 11 years ago as a creative writing program for middle schoolers to improve literacy and develop expressive young leaders. The founders organized after-school workshops and grew participation from a couple of dozen the first year to several hundred today. The annual Deep Speaks event, which features youth reading their work to an audience numbering 500 or more, has become a must-attend for the city's arts and culture crowd. More than 3,600 youth have been involved in Deep programs since 2008, and the organization is expanding its offerings to touch more lives while staying true to its roots. Dare Dukes has headed deep as executive director since 2014, and he is making a difference in the Savannah community. Our difference maker for this first Friday of October is Dare Dukes of the Deep Center. Dare has been in town since 2014, has taken the Deep Center and developed it from a core program to many programs. And he was kind enough to to come in and join us today and give us a little bit more information, not only about the Deep Center, but about himself. I think most people have come to recognize his name now, and he's been here. That's 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 the real measure around here, right? When people start to recognize, oh, I know that guy. Especially you've got a unique name, so that probably sticks with some people. But uh, tell us about pre-Savannah. You're a new, from looking at your bio, I'm guessing you're a New Yorker. No, actually. Uh, Although I feel in my heart like a New Yorker, I'm a, I'm, I'm, I was born and raised in California. Okay. Yeah. And uh, my dad was born and raised in California, grew up on a nut, fruit and nut farm. So we're sort of multi-generational um, Californians. But I lived in lived a bunch of places, lived in New York City for 15 years. And um, my wife and I moved down from there to Savannah about 10, 11 years ago now. So, okay. Yeah. Now you look at your bio; it lists you as a musician, writer, nonprofit leader. Mm-hmm. What order is that? The right order: musician, writer, <laughs> nonprofit leader. I would say these days it's nonprofit leader, <laughs> writer, musician. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But I imagine when you were a kid, you didn't. You aspired probably to be one of the first two. and not the nonprofit leader, right? What uh, What were some of your um, influences coming up? Well. I like to tell people that my heart is in the work that I do at Deep Center because um, I really um, I had a lot of challenges when I was a kid, especially in middle school, um, and I really found my way in the world and my purpose through creative um, practices. Like the very first thing that I did was photography. Um, and shortly after that, I started playing guitar and doing theater and stuff like that, and it was really... Um, through that kind of engagement with the world that I learned how to sort of make meaning and mm-hmm. connect with people socially and mm-hmm. uh, and eventually it 
was instrumental in sort of how I formed my ideas around civic engagement and politics and things like that. So, What got you into photography? Somebody give you a camera for Christmas? Or? I definitely got a camera for Christmas, and I took a class at West Valley College, a junior college, um, which we had a lot of in California. And, um, you know, back then we had dark rooms, and uh, right. so I got to do some dark room stuff, and I just started taking pictures of my friends. So, yeah. yeah. Isn't it interesting at that age? You get to the age where, okay, am I going to play sports? Yep. Uh, what direction am I going to go? And obviously you got hormones and everything else <laughs> going on as well. What about the art really spoke to you? Was it because you hadn't realized that you could be that creative on your own? Or what really touched you? Well, you know, I was I was always good enough at sports to make the team, but never good enough to um, play a lot. And um, at some point, I realized that I was I was pursuing sports more for my dad than for me. Right. And at that point, I started um, diving headlong into the creative stuff. And um, I mean, at first, I think I was just responding to something that made my brain light up. You know, right. it was just like like engaging with the world aesthetically was just like candy for me and I, mm-hmm. I it excited me and um and then later I you know I another kind of formative genre for me was punk rock I mean I was mm-hmm. I was just really into both the aesthetics and the kind of angry you know speaking truth to power stuff and love the music too and love the politics and so that was another moment that kind of where i blew up kind of as an artist are we talking the clash here or what are we oh for sure about? yeah um yeah i was sad, you know the cars i was sad uh-huh. to see that um Ocasek died and uh I'm trying to think of some of the other i mean the car the um the clash was a massive influence so. yeah, yeah yeah so you said that your father was a farmer is that well he grew up on a farm he, as a kid he, he was a, he was an insurance man as an adult life okay. but yeah okay so there's there wasn't a whole lot of creative heritage no 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 not at all <laughs> <laughs> so once you started really bonding with with that side of yourself what did your what your parents think what your friends think um, I mean, my friends were my friends. So that you know, usually I would pick the people who were into that stuff too. So, but my parents definitely didn't. I mean, my dad was completely scratching his head over it. He um, did not at all have the language to interact with me on that level. So it was you know one of the ways that we clashed. We clashed a lot in my you know adolescence and early twenties, and that was one of the things we clashed about. I think most of us do. Right? <laughs> most of us do for sure. So you went on to college mm-hmm. and, and chased the creative side. Mm-hmm. What, what did you get into? You were in, I want to say, Massachusetts, if I... Yeah, I went remember. to the College of the Holy Cross, which right. is a Jesuit school in Worcester, Massachusetts, which is about just outside of Boston. All and, the way across the country. Yep, all the way. Yeah, I, I went as far away from home as I could. <laughs> and that was my main goal. And um, I did, when I got to Holy Cross, I did a ton of theater um, I had a I had a really great um, teacher who used te- theater as a way to get her students to engage with all kinds of important issues in the world. So that became a kind of um, you know incubator for my intellectual development. Um, so did a ton of theater, and I also started doing theater out outside in Boston around that time. By the time I was in my late college years, I was I was writing and producing theater original theater in boston and that's kind of where most of my creative energy was going at that time and then when i moved um and i and i ended up going to grad school for theater mm-hmm. um and then and then when i got out of grad school for theater i started writing novels i wrote a novel once that was never um, published 
and also doing I, I, I did music kind of on and off in these years I had a band in Minneapolis that played regularly and then I had a band in New York City where that I played where I played out regularly okay so you weren't just the, the college bar band you were yeah, the was, real deal. Yeah, well, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah, you know, <laughs> you wouldn't you wouldn't know any of my my my, <laughs> the, my band's names, but yeah, I mean, we were playing around and and um, especially in New York City. And then when I moved down here, I put out a couple of records on a label in Athens, and I did some touring and played a lot locally. And so yeah, so theater, writing, music. Mm-hmm. How do you bring it all together professionally? when you're through with school you know when i when i was a struggling you know artist person i was doing whatever i could wherever i could you know on my couch or in the world and i i did um theater both in boston and in new york city and i was um for many of those years while i was doing theater i was i was writing a novel mm-hmm. and um in new york city i was uh right before i moved down here i started playing music again seriously and had a band and started recording while I was up there and was you know playing around in New York City venues um, all over the place. Never ever made any money at it, so mm-hmm. I was always working. My day gigs were always working in the nonprofit world, right. and um, you know I worked in New York City at a. Um, I got my first real kind of nonprofit job working at the New York University as a development writer, which is a fundraiser writer. So I wrote you know all kinds of hilarious copy from. I used to write letters for the president mm-hmm. and i would write descriptions of dormitory bathrooms that they wanted major donors to name and um <laughs> you know the newsletter and you, you know you name i wrote everything and um it was where i sort of cut my chops on kind of writing for for um, fundraising mm-hmm. and then i worked at a really great um public interest law firm that was associated with the nyu law school called the brennan center for justice mm-hmm. which does really great work um, it was the first place where I met attorneys I liked. <laughs> um, they uh, did all kinds of work advocating for the poor and, and writing federal legislation for campaign finance reform and stuff like that. And I was one of their main fundraisers. And I really watched the guy who was the president of that organization raise money and learned a lot from him. And then I worked for 11 years after that as the lead uh, communications and fundraising person for a place called Global Action Project, which runs youth media and leadership programming for youth in New York City. And um, very similar in mission to what Deep Center does, but their focus was on media, which was you know video making usually, right. but sometimes web-based stuff. Right. So that mixed very well with your background when you were able to, to blend that all together. Yep. Yeah. No, I learned to You just ton. feel like, bam, yeah. this is what I've been looking for? Yeah. No, I, lear- I learned a lot about a lot of different stuff um, working for Global Action Project. Um, really grew up as a person in that environment and learned how to work collectively with all kinds of different people. And when we moved, my wife got a job teaching at SCAD. Okay, that's what brought you down. Then. That's what brought us down. And um, and I still worked for Global Action Project for four years after I moved down here. I worked remotely, and I would go up there every once in a while. Mm-hmm. So when you moved down here, you're not working for Deep Center, but that's, I'm thinking of the timing, they were probably really really new if you weren't here for the start it was right after yeah well they started in 2008 and we right. moved down in 2008 so right yeah how cognizant of you were you initially and what eventually led you to them well i would see Catherine killingsworth who was one mm-hmm. of the co-founders with hartford gongaware hanging out um at foxy loxy mm-hmm. and um I'd see her, you know, face on the internet, and I'd see her in the public library where Deep had its very first official office. It was one little room in the library, mm-hmm. 
And um, I think I had a few conversations in passing with her. I, did, I didn't know a lot about Deep, but I, I knew that people loved Deep because mm. the name kept coming up and people always spoke with fondness about it. Right. So I could tell that whatever they were doing, they were doing it right. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I finally left Global Action Project, because just because I'd been there a, um, a long time and it was ready for me to go, um, I was mostly doing consulting for nonprofits around the country, but then I saw the um, the deep job, and and I um, I saw that the people who had founded it had built a really phenomenal foundation, and that there was a lot of love for its mission and the people running it in the community. Mm-hmm. And I also saw a lot of headway for how it could grow. Right. Um, and uh, so I applied for the job. Difference Makers Podcast is a great way to learn about Savannah and those who make the city tick. But there's a catch, of course, the two-week wait between episodes. Keep up with all that's going on in our town on a more regular basis by signing up for our free newsletters. We deliver an opinion page newsletter daily, and our news team does likewise. And for the foodies and Georgia Southern fans among the audience, weekly newsletters on those topics are available as well. Visit savannahnow.com slash newsletters now to get those newsletters delivered straight to your email inbox. Again, that's savannahnow.com slash newsletters. So let's talk about that mission. It founded in 2008 basically as a way to to lift people out of literacy. Can you, and you were here, but you weren't working there, but can you kind of talk us through how it, from birth to, to when you came in, what it was, what, what, what was its path? Well, Catherine Killingsworth was a creative writer who, um, was born and raised in Atlanta, and she moved to um, Savannah after um, grad school, I believe, grad school, with a f- with several friends, and started a um, a writing community mm-hmm. with a bunch of writers, um, more or less living together, uh, supporting each other. And Catherine, I believe, was the one who got the idea to start running um, programming in public schools, and so. One of the two um, gigantic things that Catherine did was she drafted the very first curriculum and she got her foot in the door of the Savannah Chatham County public school system, which is a really hard system to get your foot in the door of. And and the story was that she just kept going to, um, you know, principals and sitting in the waiting room until they (laughs) they would see her. Yeah. Yeah. So she started running programming, you know, in schools and in the communities and building a curriculum and a cohort of volunteers to do the programming. And at the same time, Hartford Gongaware, who grew up in Savannah, mm-hmm. um, he was returning from grad school as well. And he um, had known of similar creative writing. There was, weirdly, around this time, there was kind of an explosion of creative writing after school programming, um, largely headed by this um, organization called A29. And Hartford was aware of that model and had talked to some and, and thought about trying to bring some version of it to Savannah. And then he met Catherine and they kind of went from there and changed the name of it to Deep and branded it and started getting its first board and turned it into a nonprofit and, and um, started building more community support for it. So, Looking at the website, I was reading and one thing really kind of struck me. There was a line in there. It says, Savannah is a place where young people are told that if they want to leave their lane, they should leave the city. To me, that says, you know, especially in, in the context of, of uh, socioeconomics, that if you're born poor here, then you're going to stay poor here. And I know that's something that 
we as a city and as a community have been fighting against for a long time. Mm-hmm. From Deep's perspective, <clears throat> how do you guys go about changing that? Well, we use creative writing and art to help young people connect their learning to their lives, their lives to their communities, and their actions to transformational change. And we mm-hmm. also work with adults in their village, so that can be parents, probation officers, teachers, principals, counselors, to make sure that our young people seen as full human beings when they're passing through schools or juvenile court or whatever, Mm -hmm. and to also identify policies, both administrative and legislative, that can be put into place to make Savannah a better place to grow up. Mm -hmm. So for young people, the outcomes that we're, we're aiming for are you know, still literacy, like, mm-hmm. like from the very start. But now we really imagine literacy as a tool for empowerment and community ca- connection rather than just an end in itself. Right. And we also are creating safe spaces where young people can be who they are mm-hmm. and express whatever ideas they have without fear of reprisal. I mean, one of the things that our young people talk about, first of all, I, w- I should say that that quote about not leaving your lane, that's a direct quote from one of our staff members who grew up in Savannah. Is that right? Yeah. And when I talk about that particular phenomenon, I get a lot of nodding heads from people who grew up in Savannah, like across race right. and class. Right. So I think there's, I mean, one of the things that our young people identify as a barrier to thriving is respectability politics, a strong sense of hierarchy where youth are expected to sort of stay in their lane and stay in their place Mm -hmm. and told that, you know, if you want to be different in any way, you should get out of town. Mm -hmm. And some Mm -hmm. people say that in a loving way and some people say that in a not so loving way. So we try to create a different model for youth leadership that Mm -hmm. includes being who you are and advocating for your community connecting to your community by um, using your own story to be purposeful Mm -hmm. and to fight to change things that aren't working for your community. Um, I mean, one of the things that I hear people in Savannah say when they're they're complaining about young people, and Savannah likes to complain about young people for a lot of reasons, (laughs) is they talk about a kind of lack of connection. And, you know, all of this to me amounts up to um, helping young people gain access to places where they can have real conversations with real people and and see that they have the power to affect change in their communities. Right. That's where some of the Deep Center's work has come in, right? So mm-hmm. you come in the door in 2014, and uh, what are your initial impressions? Uh, <clears throat> and at what point do you decide you want to take it to a different level? I mean, my initial impression was that it um, at its core it was an amazing um, asset that some some really smart, loving people had built, mm-hmm. um, and innovative people. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, that there there seemed to be nothing but love for the program mm-hmm. um, in in all sectors of the city. And um, one of the first things I noticed as an opportunity for growth was that we had young people in our program who adored the program, um, felt like they belonged. Um, some of them, for the first time in their lives, felt like they belonged to something. Mm-hmm but they were aging up out of our program. It was a middle school program, so you could be in it for three years, and that was it, you would age out. So we immediately, with really no money, created um, a second program um, for high school students and people who had aged out of, originally it was middle school and high school, now it's a high school program called Block by Block. Mm -hmm. 
and um, it was intended to catch those young people aging up out of the Young Author Project, the, the, the core um, introductory program, take their writing to another level. So th- the other thing I noticed is that Deep was doing a really great job, as were pr- writing programs across the country, of getting young people on stage, helping them find the power to tell their stories so that they could affect um, the community and change how people thought about them. But, but um writing programs weren't doing a very good job of giving young people power sort of off the stage or Mm -hmm. past the stage. And so we thought hard about how can we create programming that'll um, make the skills that we were giving young people even more actionable in their daily lives. Um, So Block by Block was influenced by a lot of things, including my wife who ran a program, uh, uh, a class at SCAD where she had, my my wife's an anthropologist, Mm -hmm. and she had a class... um, where she had um, students um, do an ethnography of a block over a whole semester. So for a whole semester, they interviewed people, talked to, you know, learned about the history of that block, what the stories were, who the, you know, what the, who the families were, what their rivalries were, um, all that stuff. And that was one of the ideas that shaped Block by Block. It was basically a way to use, um, to have, help young people connect their own stories with history and current events and place. Mm-hmm. So as they're developing their capacity to tell their own story and figure out who they are, how they connect to, to family, they're also figuring out how to orient themselves in the world by interviewing other people, finding out what the issues are in their neighborhoods, um, and aiming their writing to address some of those issues to make themselves feel empowered as civic leaders and community leaders. I want to start talking specifically about a couple of the programs here in a minute. Before that, you mentioned funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of people, they hear that you're doing stuff in the schools, but you're not an extension of the school system. Can you kind of walk us through the funding side and, and who you are from that angle? Yeah, so we're a 501c3 nonprofit. We're a standalone, autonomous, independent um, uh, organization. We get um, funding from the United Way and... Um, some local corporations, Gulfstream gives us some money. Mm-hmm. Um, in, international paper often will fund our, the publication of our books. Mm-hmm. Um, we get some money from the city of Savannah. We just got our first funding from the county this year. Mm-hmm. We have um, several you know, family foundations and, and individuals that give us money. And um, we also get funding from national found- – we get some Georgia Council on the Arts money, Georgia Council for the Arts money. And then we also get funding from several national foundations like um, – well, we get money from the NEA, the National Endowment for the Arts, which is the federal government. Right. And then we also get some Ford Foundation money, some Robert Wood Johnson Foundation money, Mary Reynolds Babcock. Uh, we just got a big grant from the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation, which is mm-hmm. a California foundation. Yeah. We've gotten some Mellon Foundation money in the past. And, yeah. So a lot of your your writing nowadays is not so much creative writing as it is grant writing, correct? A grant proposal correct. writing. Yep. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> for sure. Along those lines, you're getting a lot of attention from a lot of different places. And I know in 2015, you ended up at the White House. Yep. Can you talk about that experience a little bit? Yeah, so we um, – the organization had been – there used to be this award. The current administration has gotten rid of this award, but there used to be an award, an award called the um, – National Arts and Humanities Youth, Youth Program Award. Thank you. National, I've got it in front yeah, of me. He you. doesn't. Thank you. <laughs> um, and it was a award that was – I think it was created by the Bush administration originally um, to celebrate arts education yeah. um, for young people. 
And so every year, um, the first lady, whoever was in the, the White House uh, of either party, would invite 10 of the best you know, arts education organizations around the country to come to the White House and celebrate youth arts education. So Catherine had gotten deep shortlisted, I think, twice for this award, and right. it involves writing a proposal right. and, and being vetted and stuff. So I came in and was able to, you know, uh, lucky for me, I wrote the third one where we finally got it. Yeah. And... Um, what was extra special was that they uh, also not only chose us to go to the White House, but they chose, uh, of all of the groups that got the award that year, they chose um, one of Deep's young people to be the only youth who got to tell his story in the East Wing of the White House and explain nice. how arts programming had changed his life. So Andre Massey, who was um, a middle school student at Mercer Middle School, you know, we I went through the same process with him that we go through with any young person in our Young Author Project. We worked on writing his story and went through several edits of it, and he practiced it, and we went to the White House, and then he got some coaching from, you know, some high-end communications consultants. <laughs> um, and he got to tell um, his story, and they also brought his dad, because the story was that he was a really reluctant writer um, in, in, in middle school. He didn't see himself as a poet. He didn't see himself as an artist. Um, and he was gently nudged into our writing program by his teacher. In Deep, he said that it was the first place that somebody had asked him, somebody in an institutional or learning s setting had asked him to talk about what he was feeling. Right. So he so he wrote a poem about his um, strained relationship with his father. Mm -hmm. And um, he, he said, you know, after the fact that it was really hard to write it down and he never expected it to get published. Um, but, you know, we went through several editing, um, you know, versions with him and he never expected to read it on stage, but his peers in his workshop voted it one of the best poems. And uh, he got up on stage at Deep Speaks, which is this live event that we do at the end of every semester for the Young Author Project, where three youth from every workshop get up and read their stories. So he got voted on by his peers to go read at Deep Speaks. And he got up, and he didn't expect his dad to be in the audience, but his dad was in the audience. And he, read, he wrote this poem that was, I'm a father, and if my son wrote this poem to me, it would have been pretty upsetting devastating huh? yeah we, he was i mean they weren't estranged but they were arguing a lot about stuff and the poem was a was a poem about how angry he was with his dad mm -hmm. and his dad was in the audience and um what happened was it opened up the possibility of a conversation when his dad heard that poem they had a conversation and they started to work it out and six months later andre would say when you asked him who his best friend was he would say his father mm. So he told this very powerful story about how writing this poem changed his relationship with his dad. And, you know, in front of Michelle Obama was literally about six feet from him. His dad was in the East Wing of the White House. Buddy Carter was there mm -hmm. um, and arts leaders from around the nation. And I got to be there, too, with him. So it was pretty powerful. It was a yeah. proud moment for him, for Deep and for Savannah. Again, the Deep Center's Dare Dukes is our Difference Maker today. Before we continue our conversation, let's pause and recognize the Difference Maker's presenting sponsor, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. The team at CETA is pushing to make Savannah a great place to work and live. CETA is committed to creating, growing, and attracting jobs and investment in the Savannah region. Whether a business looking to relocate to the Savannah region or an existing business ready to grow and expand, CETA is the centrifuge of a propeller making the connections, helping propel the business to success. Learn more about the Savannah Economic Development Authority and what they do in the Savannah community by visiting CETA.org. 
you have some big things coming up here in the next week. And the next Tuesday, uh, you have an event. It's an invitation-only event. <laughs> but it's an event uh, where you're going to roll out, I believe, your first-ever youth policy brief. Can you kind of fill we us in We are rolling out our event? very first policy brief, which is um, – so what happened was because of Block by Block, the program where young people were using their writing to engage with their community, they really wrote us into – the topic of the barriers that they were bumping into in their lives. Often the story that Savannah tells about young people is that, you know, where they are is largely their own making. If they just work hard enough, they'll be fine. And what we... Bootstraps, right? Right, the bootstraps narrative. And what we um, organizationally discovered was that we were lifting young people up and their families um, only to see them bump into ceilings that they didn't create. So we decided that it was that Deep needed to start using its power as an organization and its expertise to start talking about the ceilings as well as um, as well as um, serving our young people. So um, our youth leadership team over the past year has been partnering with researchers from the University of Georgia and, and Missouri State University and have been conducting research um, Five of our youth have engaged about 60 other youth in Savannah as researchers, mm -hmm. and they have been researching the systems that are creating barriers to their thriving in Savannah. Um, they had three different youth summits um, and talked about all you know things from you know climate change to school discipline to policing to low wage jobs to you know poverty to gun violence mm -hmm. and you know and all the kinds of things that we that everybody else in Savannah talks about. And this conversation, that research, as well as other spaces that we have at Deep, have informed our very first policy brief that we are rolling out on Tuesday. It's called um, Youth Powered Policy Recommendations for 2019. Um, and we have six policy recommendations that, that you will on Tuesday for mm -hmm. how Savannah can start to um, change its systems, reform its policies, and make um, remove the, some of the barriers that young people are bump, bumping into as they grow up here. Is it thick, or is it a couple of points? And it's about a twenty-seven page document. Okay. And, wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we did. So we we had. Um, you know, the research is real. Um, there's also a, um, a summary report that was drafted by um, our researcher at the University of Georgia, Dr. Kevin Burke, which we'll release in another couple of weeks probably. And we also had the aid of national experts. Um, you know, through some of our grant funding, we have organizations around the country who are working on similar issues who have seen the policy brief and given us ideas on how to make it as real as it can be. And so, yeah, it's a real document. And I think I, I don't know of any other time. I know I know young people have been asked to weigh in and give their opinions on on what's going on in Savannah. I don't know of any other time where young people have been empowered as researchers to conduct, you know, real, formal, actionable research on the systemic issues that they're bumping into in Chatham County. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know. Savannah loves to talk about and to young people. This is a real opportunity for all of us to listen to young people. That's an interesting topic, especially given the times, right? We're just coming off what a 16-year-old from Sweden is making a, mm -hmm. a big difference on climate change. Mm -hmm. A year ago, we have a bunch of young people from a high school in Florida where mm -hmm. there was a shooting. Mm -hmm. That Youth activism, I think, is really having a, a moment right now. I hope it's not just a moment, mm -hmm. but from where you're sitting and from the youth the youth that you're talking to, are they really just on fire right now? And what do you think is causing driving that? I mean, I, you know, I think young people have always been on fire. The civil mm -hmm. rights movement was a youth movement, mm -hmm. you know, and um, I think 
what what changes is how much people are listening and how much attention they're getting. And I think that um, you know one of the things that we tried to do in Savannah because. I, I often tell national funders this who care about funding youth leadership that like you cannot expect youth leadership in Savannah to look the same as it looks in New York City or San Francisco or Chicago where you're used to seeing young people holding up placards and speaking truth to power in these really passionate ways and in a place where where the culture is often do not leave your lane you know mm-hmm. youth leadership here can look very different and and so one of the things that we've been doing at deep is try to create these spaces where elected officials and people who empower, who make decisions can be in the room with young people. And, and what we give our young people is the capacity to tell their stories really well and to do things like research so they can show up and say, I am a credible messenger of what it's like to grow up in Savannah, you know, mayor or right. you know, school board member. Right. And, and I want you to listen to you know, what I'm experiencing and our ideas on how we could change things. So we're... Um, not only creating spaces for people to stand for young people to stand up in ways like they might in New York City or San Francisco, but also to be at the table right. when people in power are making these decisions. So, I think you'll see in the, from some of the policy recommendations that that's that's the nature of some of the recommendations. Put young people at the table when you're making some of these decisions. Wow, I can't wait now. Another program you got going on right now is you're working with adults, and I think you touched on this a little <coughs> bit earlier. It's particularly in the schools and the justice system and can you talk about what that training, what that education piece is about, where you're hoping to go with it? Yeah. Um, so th- there's actually, I think that this is a little bit under the radar right now, but there's a lot of energy to reform the way that our ch- child-serving institutions are working with young people right now. It started really with the former governor who, um, though a Republican, mm-hmm. Um, did a lot. One of his legacies was juvenile justice reform. Right. Um, and um, when that, when he started doing that work, some folks came some to to help basically in Georgia and noticed that Chatham County at the time had more than twice the number of court involved youth as, than any other county in Georgia, and that includes Atlanta County. That's counties. incredible. And that is not because our kids are twice as bad. It's because we have a culture of sentencing young people when we could be serving them. Okay. And. Um, so there are some really good judges, especially Judge Colbert and Judge Burke in the juvenile courts who have been pushing this issue for a long time. And I think it's catching fire. And they have started some stuff in partnership with Dr. Levette in the school district mm-hmm. that can start to address um, some of these barriers that young people are bumping into upstream so that we're working with young people who need special services before they get to court. Sure. Right. Um, and so they're also working on sentencing practices to divert young people from court who haven't committed a serious crime. And those who have committed a serious crime are being given second chances in special environments where experts are there to address their needs and help walk with them through the challenges they're facing. So DEEP is in really all of these spaces. And um, we are um, working with people like probation officers, um, the juvenile court judges, and now soon public school teachers and principals to advocate for positive responses to behavioral challenges for young people to really treat 
the reactions that we sometimes see as young people as a symptom of some some other need that they have mm -hmm. um, and to respond as an institutional as an institution in a way that gives people what they need instead of throws them out of the building yeah less punishment right yeah as a parent i think maybe i need to sit on some of those right <laughs> Um, it doesn't sometimes. mean, and it doesn't. I want to. <laughs> I want to hasten to add. It doesn't mean no consequences. Right. Um, it just means that the consequences happen in a way that keep the young person connected to their community, rather than removing them to the, from their community. And um, which data is pretty clear that when you when you lock a kid up or suspend them, um, it exponentially increases the likelihood that they'll stay in those systems for um, for good. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. They. They lose hope, I guess, or figure get. They figure that's their lane, as we talked about earlier. Maybe. Right? Yep. Yep. And I think um, you know, as even um, you know, Republicans know now, um, it costs way more money to lock somebody up than it does to address their needs upstream. We interrupt the Difference Makers podcast to remind you about our other regular podcasts, such as the At Savannah Opinion Commute hosted by yours truly with a new episode that posts every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. The commute is the easiest way to keep up with the latest news and happenings that Savannians are talking about. Search for The Commute with At Savannah Opinion on your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe. Episodes are also available through the savannahnow.com website at savannahnow.com slash podcast. You can also check out our other podcasts, such as Georgia Southern Extra with its focus on Georgia Southern football, the Do Savannah podcast with its emphasis on local arts and entertainment, and the daily See You in the Morning podcast that offers a roundup of the day's headlines. I want to finish up the back half here in talking a little bit about your, your core program, and that's the, the young authors and then the, the high school programs that you've started since. And you're addressing literacy through writing, through speaking. You could sit there and teach somebody how to read, right? Mm -hmm. If you really wanted to. Mm -hmm. Why is this approach different, and what does encouraging people to put down the written word in their own, out of their own thoughts, and then to speak it out to others? How does that enhance the whole development of your literacy? Uh, the way I like to think of it is, reading is really consuming meaning, and writing is really making meaning. Mm -hmm. And um, and so um, both are important, but I do think that people who think about literacy think tend to think only of of reading. Mm -hmm. And it's important to be able to read a row sign and a menu and and um, and a book, um, but it's also really important to know how to connect the dots and make meaning in the world in the way that marshalling words together to create a coherent, you know, story or essay or poem uh, encourages the writer to do. So, you know, in a world that often feels fragmented and siloed and where people s struggle to connect facts to reality, I'd say, you know, we, meet, we need um, more educational spaces where young people are encouraged to, you know, connect the dots and think critically about what they're consuming. Um, and I think writing is a, is a really great mechanism for that kind of um, learning capacity. Right. Being a writer myself, I know how lonely writing is mm -hmm. you know you go out and you gather some string and you talk to some people and maybe you experience some things and you have fun and and then the work begins right you got to come back and you sit down at that keyboard and usually you're sitting down at that keyboard by yourself you're working with these young writers who don't have the experience in that what are some of the challenges that you see them face and what do you and your folks do to 
kind of help mentor them and get them going. Well, one of the values that we try to instill in young people in our programs is um, being fearless or fearlessness. And um, that means um, that they're writing about stuff that um, is sometimes hard to write about. And that could be because they've lived it and it's hard to share it, or it could be because it's a, they chose a really difficult topic to write about out in the world or because, you know, because they need extra learning around it. And so um, we have a lot of supports in place <laughs> um, to help uh, carry our young people through the challenges of writing. And I, I would also add revising, One of, yeah. especially in our young writers. Revision is just oh, yeah. um, a foreign alien you know, <laughs> That's right. idea to them because they, they, they like to believe it's perfect once they get it down. And, and we part of the, you know, part of the learning process is, is going through that process of making it as best, you know, killing your babies and learning how to make it the best. Drowning it your, be. puppies, <laughs> Drowning your puppies. Drowning your puppies. You know, w- you know, one thing I'll say, I think probably one of the, one of the most powerful ways we support young people in, in the, in the difficult process of li- of uh, writing is, um, they're often writing collectively. Mm-hmm. They do take their stuff at home and write at home, but um, they're often in a room together um, being supported by staff. Um, they often see the collective power of their writing in a room together when they're reading their work together or they're reading a work together to an audience. So though the act of writing can be lonely, the, um, the experience can really be a communal one and deep. That's right. Um, and they're also, you know, if they're writing about family stories, which is, you know, really, really common for our young, because we really encourage them to write their own stories. Mm-hmm. They're also, you know, they're, they're writing the stories about their father or their mother or their guardian that um, they might not have known until they were encouraged to sit down and ask them about mm-hmm. stuff. So they're 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 you know they're sort of deepening the fabric of their of their immediate family as well. So they're they're kind of building community while they're writing. Yeah, when they get up in front of people to speak, I mean maybe they're too young to to know any better, but I know most adults that haven't done much public speaking is terrifying. Right. How do the kids deal with it? Well, I mean, a lot of them. There are some that refuse to do it, and we don't make anybody do anything they right. want to do. So, right. I mean, a lot. You know, a lot of them they get how real it. And some of those audiences are big. I mean, there yeah. might be like five hundred people in the audience, so they get it. I mean, you know, some of them tremble and and um, and some of them shake, um, and others completely rise to the occasion and soar. I I will say that we have had people like there's this one young woman named Crystal who's been in our programs. She's gone through all of our programs now who was painfully shy um, when she was in middle school at East Broad and, um, you know, never read her workout and, um, to anybody and wouldn't share in school and felt very disconnected and her parents were worried about her. And she is a natural-born writer. I'd like to take the credit, you know, for Deep that we did this, but I think she's a natural-born writer. And um, so she really flourished in Deep. And when she found her power there and realized that how much of a strength that was for her, she started sharing her writing more and, you know, sort of became a natural leader. Um, and now she has no problem at all, you know, stepping out on stage and and raising her voice in really powerful ways. So... For people like her, you know, being encouraged to find who you are and find your power in those solitary places where you're writing yeah. can end up connecting you to community in more powerful ways. So. Yeah, and I'm sure you see the self-confidence just yeah, shoot yeah, yeah. like a rocket at yeah. some point. I mean, that's right. the other thing is like when you write about who you are and then you share it, 
mm-hmm. uh, especially if you're writing about things that you're you're afraid to share or whatever stuff you're going through. It, it naturally, like learning how to tell your story, naturally builds your sense of self worth and self confidence. So. Yeah. I want to wrap up with this, and that's Deep Center has inspired 3,600 kids and growing. How much do these kids inspire you and your staff, and in what ways? I mean, I think it's uh, it's the reason we do the work that we do. I mean, I have I have I should say I have an amazing staff. Like I am not deep. Deep is is a is a community of um, now 13 staff members who are deeply dedicated and skilled and um, loving. And um, I think, you know, we all find our own stories and the stories of our young people in, in different ways. We have staff who grew up in Savannah who see themselves as natural mentors helping, you know, helping Savannah's young people navigate the things that they had to navigate when they were young. I know me personally, I, um, like I said, I struggled in middle school, and so I really see Um, When I see young people in middle school, which is a really hard time, you know, Mm, um, whether you have a lot of supports or not, it's a really hard time. So um, I really am inspired to see, you know, people like Crystal who Mm. were were clearly struggling, um, find out who they are um, and come into their own. It just, um, you know, makes the late nights writing long grant proposals worth it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you should. You, know, you probably got the pictures up of the kids <laughs> on your top of your keyboard as yeah. you're writing them, right? Yeah. Well, thank you very much for for all that you do for this community and mm-hmm. Deep is, I guess it's been here, eleven years 11 now, years, yep. and it's it's certainly become an invaluable piece of this community, especially when it involves our youth. And I thank you for doing it. I thank you for coming in and joining us and being our difference maker this week. And uh, we'll look forward to reading that policy brief here right. shortly. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thanks to Dare Dukes for sharing his insights on Difference Makers and to our presenting sponsor, the Savannah Economic Development Authority. Tap into the Difference Makers archives anytime on your favorite podcast app to hear interviews with more of Savannah's community leaders, such as the Georgia Ports Authority's Griff Lynch, the Savannah Voice Festival's Maria Zuvis, and Chatham County District Attorney Meg Heap. Difference Makers is a production of the Savannah Morning News and SavannahNow.com. Our next episode will post October the 18th. Thank you for listening.